Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. We are continuing in our series, our post-Easter series on the life of Elijah and Elisha. Before I read our text this morning, page 311, by the way, in the Pew Bible, using that. Uh, Before I read our text this morning, I want to remind us that this this chapter um, sits in with the chapters that we looked at last week, uh, four, five, and part of six, which are the miracle chapters of Elisha. Um, This is the prophet that came after Elijah. So we looked at that last week too. And just again to to highlight, we're not really leaving this, we're just seeing it from a different angle, that what miracles do uh, is they give us a window into the heart of God, specifically his compassion towards his people. And miracles are not just sort of these random events that happen just so that God can kind of, you know, he gets bored and he wants to do something kind of fun. Um, Miracles always have a purpose, and that purpose primarily is always redemptive. They come at uh, major places in the story of God's redemption for his people. And um, such is the case here where this book, First and Second Kings, it had been one book, was written to God's people who were in the worst of worst situations at this point. They were exiled from um, Jerusalem, from uh, Judah, and they are exiled by Babylon, and they are held captive by Babylon. Um, and um, it is to that audience that this book, and specifically these words, go to. And it's important for us to keep that in mind as we read this. So, um, having said that, let me, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. And I'll read the whole chapter for us this morning, beginning in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one, on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria." Should be Elisha. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking to quarrel with me. Verse 8, but when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar 
the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, and he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him, and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he, Elisha, refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he, Elisha, said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master, though, has sent me to say, There have, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, Two young men of the sons of the prophets, please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he, Elisha, said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Would you do this by your spirit? Would you soften hardened hearts? that you would make them good soil, such as a seed that goes into good soil and produces a fruit, so that the word of God might go into our hearts and change us. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. 
One of the first things that you learn when you go to seminary and you start studying the Bible um, is that when you're studying in the Old Testament, as we have been doing, is that it is uh, always good to take a moment in your study and discern or, or, or look to see if, is there any place in the New Testament that this Old Testament text shows up? And if so, what does it help me know or understand either about the text that I'm reading or obviously about God, about Jesus himself? Well, as it so happens, our passage today is a passage that is referenced by Jesus in Luke chapter four. And um, this is actually the same chapter in Luke that we looked at last week, where Jesus, beginning his earthly ministry, comes into the synagogue, is handed a scroll from Isaiah. It's actually Isaiah 61, but they didn't have chapters. And he reads this section of Isaiah 61. And, and, and after that, uh, he rolls up the scroll and he says, today this has been fulfilled. Many uh, look at that as the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Well, he has more to say as he continues in Luke chapter 4, and I want to read that for you here now. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this is to those in the synagogue, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. Talking about the great drought. And a great famine came over the land, and Elijah uh, was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Some good review for us in this series. Here's our verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the uh, brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Here's the one thing I want us to figure out this morning. Why? were those listening to Jesus when he quoted from the passage that we're going to look at today, why were they filled with wrath? Why did they want to throw him down the cliff and kill him? And what might that have to mean or do with us this morning? I want to look at that as we look at two things in chapter 5 of 2 Kings. I want us to see in the story of Naaman the way to be made clean this is the way to be made clean for Naaman. And then I want us to see the danger of grace. Just two things. The way to be made clean and the danger of grace. Looking at in verse, beginning with verse 1 in chapter 5, right? In these first two verses, we read enough that would cause or should cause our heads to say, what? Uh, the very first word of chapter 5 introduces us to a Gentile man who was the commander of the Syrian army for King Aram. And Naaman went on raids, it says, against Israel. It also says that he was a valiant warrior. During one of these raids, though, which would involve the destruction of villages, right, don't romanticize this, it would involve killing of Israelites and the plundering of their property, Naaman also brought back, it says, a young Israelite girl to serve his family. Specifically, it seems, to serve his wife and to attend to her needs. 
And just so we're clear about this, right, this means that at least that this young girl has been taken from her home, taken from her parents, taken from her family and friends and everything, and at best, right, at best her family is still alive. At worst, they were killed in the raid. And now she is a slave, essentially, in a foreign commander's household, who the Bible in these first two verses are actually speaking highly of. All we know at this point is that God sovereignly gave victory to Naaman. And at the end of the verse one, we are told that this enemy commander has a skin disease or was a leper of some sort. And at this point, right, right, especially if we were Jewish in this day and age, but as Christians, we might be like, yes, finally, justice. But what's going to happen in this chapter is God is actually going to heal Naaman, the enemy commander, and he's going to do it, and it's going to come about, you should, I should say, through the very servant girl mentioned in verse 2, whom he kidnapped in the raid, a girl with no name, you might notice, who is the model of faith in this account. When uh, we see this in verses 3 to 4, where she says to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him uh, of his skin disease. And as we continue to read in the story, what happens? Naaman gets wind of this, and he goes to tell his king about the prophet. Verse 5, the king of Syria says, go, and I will send a letter ahead of you. So Naaman goes, and the king, uh, he goes, or sorry, he goes, and, and with him, just to do some uh, con conversion rate here, uh, he actually gives him 750 pounds of silver. Right. 750 pounds of silver, uh, not to mention the gold and the other sets of clothing, right? No small gift for a king of Israel. The idea here uh, that we should be noting is not charity, uh, but one of favor. I will buy my salvation. I will buy my cure. Verse 6, the letter is brought to the king of Israel. And this is where we encounter what we might say our first contrast in the passage. A lot of contrasts in this story. Uh, but it's the contrast between the king of Israel's response here um, to what the king of Syria is saying, sending Naaman to be healed. And the king's first instinct isn't to call on Elijah, as we noted, as we heard read, uh, or to call even upon the name of the Lord. Instead, the king's response is the king of Israel. He reflects the reality that Yahweh and his prophet Elisha are far from his lips, which has been the song all along since we began this series, unfortunately. And the contrast there is between this king and this no-named Israelite slave girl back, that we met back in verse 2, who was the one pointing, I should say, Naaman to Yahweh. The king feels that he is in charge of curing this man, or at least finding a solution. And if he doesn't, perhaps the king of Syria will inflict more raids. This is why the king of Israel tears his clothes. Thinks this is all on him. He, he doesn't even think about his prophet. doesn't think about God. By verses 8 or 9, though, Elisha enters the story. After Elisha hears of the king tearing his clothes, he tells him to send Naaman to him, that he might know that there is a prophet in Israel, which is another way of saying that, that he might know who the one true God is. Naaman shows up at Elisha's house, and this is where the story gets interesting. Elijah, you notice there's chariots, there's horses and everything, right? It's this big sort of pomp and circumstance as if, as if the, the president himself has shown up at your house. Imagine all the security and what happens? Does Elijah go out to meet him? No, he doesn't even bother to get off the couch. The text says he sends a messenger. 
And the messenger tells Naaman, again, the commander of the Syrian army, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. It's a very straightforward, simple assignment. But this isn't what Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, wants to hear. He wants what? Something more. He wants something more dignifying, you might say, to his status. After all, he has brought with him, I don't know if you noticed, Elisha, 750 pounds of silver, all this gold, and coins as well. It is as though Naaman is saying, I am not going to bathe in the waters of the Jordan seven times. Can't you just come to me and sort of just wave your hand over me and I'll be on my way? Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in rage. Verse 13, as I said, the stars of the show. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word from the prophet that he has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? See, the servants get it. And it's unclear if the Israelite girl is sort of a part of this, but they get it. Essentially, what the servants are saying in the nicest of ways is, Naaman, get over yourself. Did the prophet say, wash and be clean? Then go wash and be clean. I mean, what, what is worse than leprosy in this day and age? You asked me to go bathe in the river a hundred times, I, I'm, I'm gone, I'm bathing, whatever it takes. Get over yourself. And see, at this point in the text that we can kind of pull off to the side here and really sort of reflect on what's going on so far, especially as it pertains to this simple command that what's hard about this for Naaman is what's hard about grace for any of us, right? It requires us to what? To humble ourselves and receive it. Naaman wants to pay for it. And be on his way. Naaman wants a commander's cleansing, which is make this as quick and as easy as possible. What he doesn't want is to be inconvenienced. What he doesn't want is something that requires what humility, that he truly needs something. And if there's somebody that must present that type of posture to his people, it is the commander of the Syrian army. Notice, even in mentioning the other places which are nicer than all the waters of Israel, it's clear that he thinks that he is too good for the waters of the Jordan. And for the moment, for the moment, his pride is keeping him from the only thing that can save him. There is always something in us that says, I am not doing that. When it comes to receiving charity, when it comes to receiving grace, as the Bible talks about it, when it comes to receiving mercy. And the reason for this is because grace, mercy, these things that we can't bring anything to the table to receive, it is offensive to our pride. This is the, pro this is the problem with the fall. This is why we suppress the truth. It is offensive to us. I need what? I don't need a thing. 
But unless the need is big enough, which actually is the grace in the text for Naaman, right? Unless the need is big enough, most of us will never consider it. Some of us would admit that conditions would have to get really, really bad for us to ask for help. But even in those types of situations and circumstances, there's a part of us that would still not ask. For the moment, the question that the text is, text is presenting to us is, is, is leprosy for Naaman, right? Is that not bad enough? This will either kill him or it will cause him to live out the remainder of his days in isolation from others. A living hell for sure. And this was a death sentence for the most part in this day and age. But what the Bible is also saying about Naaman that we can't gloss over at this point is that there is a spiritual leprosy, as it were, that is far worse, that is far deadly, that is far more isolating than the physical leprosy that he has. And the good news is, is that like the physical leprosy, there's a cure for the spiritual leprosy. There's not several cures. Right, there's not, not multiple options of rivers to go bathe in. There's one cure. There's one option. There's one river, Naaman. Go bathe seven times in the Jordan. And the same is true for us as we apply this even at this point, right? There's one option for us. It is to have the same faith that Naaman has in the prophet, uh, who's God that he believes in, which is to say that he has faith in Yahweh. And it is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's as simple and as straightforward as that. But you have to see your need for it. You have to see you have no other options. Come back to that in a second. Naaman sees this about himself. And it's a whole nother story, perhaps now a podcast, of the patience of God with a pagan enemy commander as he comes to know the Lord. Don't miss that. But Naaman sees this about himself, and in verse 14 we read, So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the way. In this miracle, coming back to our sort of major theme over the past, this week and last, in this miracle, we get a window into God's heart, specifically his compassion. But what's different is who this compassion is going to. And now we're beginning to also get a window into what's going on in Luke 4. Because who is this compassion going to? It's just not going to some Gentile widow that we've seen before, some outsider. This is going to an enemy of God's people. God is showing unorthodox mercy, we might say, to Naaman, an enemy of God himself. That's the miracle in the passage. What's the gospel in the passage, right? It's the free gift of salvation. Look at verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God. This is Naaman returning to Elisha. He and all of his company, and he came and he stood before Elisha, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. 
And then we get in verses 17 and 18 and 19, this awesome response from Naaman. Okay, I get it. I got it. Please have mercy on me. When I have to go back to my pagan community, my king, and I have to walk him down into, uh, you know, whatever pagan rituals they have to do to go worship this God, please forgive me. I will not worship that God, though. I will let him hold on to my hand to get him down there. To which Elisha says, go in peace. Again, another sermon for another day. What's the point? If you want to be clean, there's only one way. You can't buy it. You can only receive it. And to receive it, you must humble yourself. And to humble yourself, you must see your need. And that's what happens to Naaman, the enemy commander of the Syrian army who brought raids against God's people. In no place this far in the book of Kings have we seen mercy extended this far. Not just to Gentiles, but to Gentile enemies. And for the moment, what the gospel for Naaman is showing us is that any who place their faith in the Lord will be made clean. And this, friends, is a bridge too far for some. Because what it is saying is that no one is so bad that they somehow work themselves outside of God's grace. If an enemy commander of God's people can receive mercy, so can you. At the same time, this text is also showing us that no one is so good that they do not need God's mercy. And this gets us to the second point in the rest of the story, but this is the way to be made clean. Let's look at the danger of grace. The danger of grace is who God might actually extend it to. And this should be the end of the story, by the way, right? But it's not. In many ways, Naaman's account reads like Luke 15 and the the parable of two brothers, as we've talked about in the past couple weeks before. All right, you think the story should end when the wayward son comes home and the celebration has happened and everything's great, but that's not where the story ends because it's not really what the story's about. And the same is true here. It's wonderful to see pagan enemy generals come to know the Lord, right? What the story is about is what those closest to God and how they respond to it, specifically Gehazi, Elisha's servant. After Elisha refuses Naaman's financial gift, Naaman heads home. And after Naaman was gone from him a short distance, verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. Notice we're putting that title every time we say to Gehazi. I want to make sure you know who this person was. Said, see, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi goes after Naaman and tells him that his master Elijah has just, two son, has just seen two sons of the prophets come from Ephraim and requests a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. At this point, you're like, what is, what is, what is this? He's making all of this up. Elijah never said any of this. Naaman was happy to oblige, though, knowing no different. Gehazi returns home, and Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, Ask Gehazi, right, where, where he's been. This is God in the garden with Adam and Eve. Where are you, right? You're, you're not going to get this past the prophet just as much as you're not going to get it past God. To which he says, I went nowhere. Wrong response. But Elijah says, did not my heart go, right, when the man turned from his chariot thinking about not Gehazi, but thinking about Naaman. When he turned from his chariot to meet you. 
This is where we got to stop for a second. Elisha goes on to say, was it time to accept money and garments and all those things? What's the, what's the problem here? It's not just that Gehazi lied, which is bad enough. It's what his lie did. It took everything that Elisha had taught Naaman about the gospel back in verse 16, about the free gift of grace, and he reversed it. In other words, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, Gehazi made Yahweh a taker. Just like all the other gods in the land. A taker, not a giver. A God that says, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. A God that says, I help those who help themselves. You want to be cured of leprosy? It's going to cost you something. Which was Naaman and the king of Syria's assumption to begin with, right? Don't forget about the 750 pounds of silver. Their understanding of the gods, or anyone for that matter, is that nothing in life is free. They were prepared to pay for the healing. But Elisha says, those aren't God's ways. We've heard that over and over in this series. As Isaiah 55 writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. That, friends, is the gospel. That is God's grace, and it is free. But what Gehazi did through his selfish schemes is he upended the message. In other words, he effectively preached another gospel. And this is what, this is what Elisha is referring to when he says, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Much of this recalls Paul's words in Galatians Chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, he says, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, let him be damned. In this way, Right. Gehazi's judgment of being, becoming a leper actually isn't that bad. It could be much worse. But this is where the judgment comes in. And this we see actually gets us to the actual point, right? The danger of grace in the passage for Israel. And what is that as we look at Gehazi? The danger of grace in the passage is, is who God might extend it to. And that is our good news this morning as Gentiles. By the way, we all need to say amen to that. Assuming y'all are Gentiles, we might have some ethnic Jews with us this morning. Um, but yes, exactly who he might extend it to. He might extend it to me. But this is the danger for Gehazi, right? Uh, he might extend his grace and mercy to Gentile outsiders. He might extend it um, to those who are enemies. But he might extend it at the expense of, of what? Of his grace and mercy coming over us. There are Israelite lepers needing to be cleansed, Yahweh. How can you pass over them and give your grace and mercy to someone like this? And immediately we were thrust into the synagogue with Jesus standing there, putting in their face, as it were, almost 
that this was the case, something they had not gotten over for, gosh, some 600 years, 800 years. The danger of grace in the passage is who God might extend it to, and this is why those in Luke 4 wanted to kill Jesus. Naaman was healed of leprosy while other Jews weren't, and many in Israel were not okay with that. And we might say that they weren't okay with it because they wanted to boast in being Jewish. They wanted to boast in something else. They wanted to boast in their ethnicity. They wanted to boast in their righteousness. They wanted to boast in their wealth. And we can all join the chorus at this point, right? It's not just about being Jewish. It's about being human. It's about the things that we want to uh, boast in and say, this is what's gotten me this. Instead of what? Instead of being recipients of grace, instead of boasting in the free offer of the gospel that you are somebody in need and Jesus has a solution for you and it's him. This is who we boast in. As one commentator writes, Israel was fine with God's compassion being extended to others as long as it didn't pass over them. What is a stumbling block for Gehazi is God's grace, which is the life for Naaman. And the chapter ends with the same question being presented to us this morning. Is God's grace both the way to be made clean this morning but also in who God might extend it to. Is that life for you? Is it beautiful? Is it lovely? Or is it offensive and even foolish? As we come back to the New Testament this morning, if we are not ready for a God who sows such mercy and grace in the ways that he shows it to Naaman, then we certainly won't be ready for Jesus and his cross. What the cross ultimately shows us as we think about it coming out of 2 Kings 5 is it shows us, one, the way that we are truly made clean, which is by the blood of Christ, and there aren't other ways. At the same time, the cross opens the floodgates to God's forgiveness for anyone who would humble themselves and receive it by faith in Jesus. Anyone who will say, I will boast in the Lord, not in my own righteousness. But it's here that we know that the paradox of both of these things. In this way, the cross will always be lovely to some, but it'll be offensive to others because grace either strips away our boasts or it gives us one to boast in. And that's the question for us this morning. Which is it this morning? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Is Jesus this morning offensive because he strips away your boast or is he lovely because like Naaman, his grace gives you one to boast in? I'll finish with this. We'll come back to Luke 4. And as we think about this moment with Jesus, we begin to see something that we couldn't see it before after looking at the text. Yes, those offended by the grace of God 
made them want to kill Jesus. But what actually happened in the text? Jesus somehow walked through them. Do you remember me reading that? And what is that? It's a miracle. People don't normally walk through people, but that's what Jesus did. And what's a miracle, friends? It's a window into the heart of God. How is this a window into the heart of God, specifically his compassion for his people? Here's how. If Jesus wanted to make them pay, all he had to do was let them throw him over the cliff, forsaking the way of the cross and the remission of sins. But instead, Jesus postpones that death for a far worse death, a death that would offer the very ones who tried to kill him, his enemies, the very forgiveness that they needed. In other ways, in other words, a way to be made clean. And this is what the cross is, and this is why it is a window into the heart of God, his compassion, his grace for us. Jesus' miracle is a window into his compassion, even for his enemies, as he doesn't allow them right, to, to get what they deserve, as it were. But yet he hangs on a cross saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. Extending, right, the option here, is that offensive to you or is that lovely? Come for those who have ears to hear, wash and be clean. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about Naaman, we think about who your grace is extended to, we think about what is required We pray for our own hearts this morning that we have not uh, looked over your grace and put qualifications on it or put limitations on it as to who it's for. And so in that way, would it be a check to us that we'd be reminded that we are the very ones, our hearts are the very ones, the very enemies of God that you have shown compassion towards. But should we not fail to see the lovingness and the beauty of Christ as he goes to the cross, the place where he will die for his enemies, so that we may be made clean forever. We thank you for that this morning. We pray that you would allow that good news to change us. And as we meet you now at this table, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in that reality, that you would make your goodness to us, your grace and your mercy more real, tangible, that we would trust your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.